This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're chatting with Norton Crane. Norton spent 20 years as the general manager of Hartley Grazing Company, a company owned by Dick Austin. But after retiring five years ago, Norton now owns and runs his own retirement block of 1,400 hectares just south of Coonabarabran, in partnership with his wife, Judy. Norton and Judy run 200 cows and 500 sheep across their property, Bannockburn. And although Norton describes himself as semi-retired, you'll soon hear he is managing to keep himself very busy. In this episode, you'll hear how Norton is well known in the industry as a capable cattleman, having previously managed Hartley Grazing Company, a beef cattle business covering 10,000 hectares with farms at New Mollyann and Hartley. You'll also hear how creep feeding calves has enabled him to meet his target markets, irrespective of the season, while taking pressure off his breeders. Central West Local Land Services Mixed Farming Officer Callan Thompson caught up with Norton for this chat over a cup of tea and some delicious pumpkin soup at the kitchen table on Bannockburn. Thank you, Norton, for joining me today. Thanks, Callan. Norton, can you tell me about your farming operation? Yes, this is my semi-retirement block. Run a couple of hundred Angus cows and uh, 500 Dorper ewes. Some two and a half thousand acres that we own and we lease 900 acres nearby. You're mainly native grasses with some improved pasture and lucerne? Yes, we have lucerne, uh, native grasses improved with subclovers and medics and have some premier digit grass. And uh, we have a lot of African love grass on Bannockburn, which we're trying to get rid of by bringing oats into the cycle and for a couple of years and sowing it down to subtropicals. African love grasses is a pretty hated species, but during the drought, it was actually pretty useful. It, it saved us. We fed for two and a half years cotton seed using everything, rocks, pine tree leaves, and, and it, that was our roughage. And we didn't use any hay at all. And the uh, love grass was just fantastic. They ate it to the ground. But now, of course, we don't want to see any more of it. Can't stand the sight of it. <laughs> You've also had a fair bit of, in the past, a fair bit of console love grass as well. Yes, I like it. We've got some on this property. I don't know how many acres we've got, but it's completely different. The cattle like it, particularly if you um, super it, and don't let it get rank, which wasn't a problem during the drought. It's easier to grow than the um, Premier Digit, I've found. Yeah, it always seems establishment's a lot easier with the console, and it will grow on soils that even Digit won't grow on, which is a, a real benefit to it. Norton, when I first met you, you were the manager at Glencoe and I was doing some agronomy there on some of your cropping country. I guess the reason I, I wanted to have this discussion is I used to drive past your wieners and I, as I say, I was, I was there to look at your crops, but I was probably more interested in your cattle. Because I was going out on a weekly basis, I was seeing the size and, and the growth rate of those wieners. I know that you were creep feeding through a lot of that time. So today I'd, I'd really like to talk about uh, creep feeding and, and how you implemented that. So I guess my first question is, why did you creep feed? Well, I've been doing it about 30 years on and off. It takes that trough out in a, like a dry summer or autumn. So we've always targeted the, the butcher market, you know, sort of uh, 
192, 10 kilos. You can get them from the day they're born to the day they've sold, you know, sort of 10, 12 months. They haven't had a setback at all. It's very simple. It's a good tool. The calves can go in, but the cows can't. I guess I probably should explain to people what creep feeding is, and, and I, I guess it's restricting your cows from getting to a feeder or a paddock that, that you're allowing your calves That's to right. do. It also takes the pressure off the cow. She will cycle better, and when you wean the calf, uh, she's normally in better condition. It doesn't drag the cow down. That's another very important thing. So in your creep feeding situation, you said you're targeting the butcher market? So what yes. size were those? They'd vary depending on the age, but normally you try and get that 190 to 210 kilos dress weight. We sold a lot of them direct to Victoria and they love them. They're vealers really. I mean, now it can change because you know, it's a different ball game since 2016 since the cattle market's gone up, but you could, we could still creep feed, then wean them and just put them on an oat crop with still the grain self-feeder there and uh, they won't lose any weight. They just keep going. Normally, it's a bit crude, this theory, but a calf's born to say 35 kilos, it'll put it on a kilo a day until it's sold. So if it's nine months old, it'll be about 300 kilos, 10 months old, it'll be so on. Of course, that you do get extremes in that. It just takes, as I keep saying, it takes that trough out where your calf doesn't go sideways. And if you get a dry autumn, you've got something to sell. In the drought, we always had something to sell. It was really a useful tool then. Now, probably not as much because as long as you produce four legs, you get paid for it. <laughs> we, we do also have these sheep, and I, I, I haven't done it, but I think we've got lambs on ewes now, and they would really need creep feeding, and I think there's a real opening there for us. In that period where you've got generally a feed gap, is it generally that the feed that you've got the cows on, it's summer feed, it's dry grass, and it's become too rank, and there's not the feed quality for them to produce the milk? Exactly. And, and then you go into autumn and you get a few frosts on, on your native grasses or it's a dry autumn. With creep feeding, the milk supplies protein. The roughage is the dry grass. The real bonus is the grain. That just keeps them going. You don't get any dark cutters and they die beautifully. If you're just producing wieners and nothing else, I guess creep feeding is not, not an option. It's just to get those calves off early. What breed were you using? Mainly Angus and using a limousin bull as a terminal sire. That worked quite well. We had at Glencoe 2,500 cows. Generally, about half of them were on creep feeders. It wasn't a huge job. We just had a four-wheel drive truck with a double bin. You know, we fed lupins and barley, and you'd go around and fill your creep feeders up every week. We grew very little oats. Oats was mainly used as a tool to establish lucin. When the lucin fizzled out after four or five years, you'd grow a couple of years of oats. Then you go back into your loosen again. With creep feeding, I know it's different now with high cattle prices, but before, if you sold a, a prime vealer, you're getting the same money then as by weaning a, a calf, putting a crop of oats and selling them in spring. I always said you're getting tomorrow's prices today. But as I said, it's, it's, it's a different ball game now. Generally in this district, you can't fatten stock, you can't finish stock without oats if you're relying purely on native grasses. So I guess it yes. gives you that good opportunity to not have that high expense of growing forage crops and things like that because grain historically is, is usually pretty reasonably priced. Yes. I mean, to, to wean an animal and put him on a crop of oats, I guess it's probably, would you agree, about $100 a head? Yeah, well, we're probably looking at about $450 a hectare. Okay, so it's more than $100, isn't it? Yeah. Because that's one to the acre. Yep. 
Yes, so that's it has been a good tool. Of course, they eat grain. <laughs> it depends, but between around a third of a tonne, maybe a bit more, depending how long you keep them on, depending on the season. Now, the high grain price takes that shine out of it. So what was the grain mix that you're using? Um, initially, one-third lupins, two-thirds barley. I have fed straight barley. And during the drought, I've gone on a dry distiller, dry DDGS wheat pellets. And they were, they were very good. They're 21% protein and 13 megajoules of energy. So that's, that was easy, just stick it in the feeder. It had to be simple because we didn't have the manpower all the time. Basically, we filled the feeder up and the calves walked in ad, ad lib. They didn't have to lick. I didn't close the feeders right down. They could eat what they want. And how old were they when you first put them in? Or? Well, it depended on the season. If they're born in June or July, August, you'd put them on at Christmas time, sometimes a little bit later, and you'd feed them right through until they were you know, really nine, ten months. At Hartley, another property, 700 each year were creep fed, went in the Camden market, vealers, 100% of the calves there were put on creeps. Otherwise, if you didn't do that, you had a wiener, and there was a, a, a big premium for vealers at that time. Those calves that you're putting on, how did you get them to actually start feeding? Ah, I yes. imagine that would be quite difficult and quite not something that they're used to. Well, at Glencoe, some of the paddocks were 1,000 acres, but only had one or two watering points. Just you put the feeder near the watering points. Calves being sticky beaks, they'd walk in, <laughs> and it was pretty simple. Sometimes you might put a bale of hay there to keep the, the cows you know, more attracted to staying in the area. But not, not hard to get them on at all. Yeah. And did you have many shy feeders that just wouldn't go on to it? No, no. And, and all the years, we didn't have many deaths either. I mean, you think, oh, well, they're on barley, you're going to have a huge death. But no, one or two, some, sometimes one might get stuck in the gate or something. But It generally wasn't an acidosis or something no, like that. No, Yeah. One of the burning questions I had is, how did you set the creep feeder up? What did it look like? We had round feeders and oblong feeders. But for example, we had a round HE feeder. I just put gates right around it. Gates so the calves could actually get in and walk around and the cows couldn't. The gates were about 1,100 high and the distance between the actual bars, uprights, was 460 millimetres. If you went too wide, the cow would get in. If you went too narrow, the calf would get stuck. So that seemed to be the figure uh, that measurement worked. On an oblong feeder, I still put gates right around the whole thing rather than let them walk in and back out. And did you find that stopped some of the bullying and blueing between the cows for yes. trying to get feed? Yeah, no, yeah that's right. And you want, you'd want plenty of feeders too. And you mentioned before, Norton, that it helped the cows come back into cycle. Do you have any numbers on how much it increased your reproduction rates and things like that? They, they didn't lose condition. But I guess, as I say that, I... Um, if I'm not putting the creeps to Christmas time, when well, normally the bulls are out. But I guess I meant when you had a dry spring, that's, yeah. that's when you put the feed in early. And yeah. that's what took the pressure off the cow and she's more likely to cycle. Yeah. And so by putting them in at Christmas time, I guess that cow is more inclined to, to hold on to that calf and have higher internal growth and things like yes. that. Yeah. And she doesn't fall in a heap in a dry autumn. Yeah. That's the main thing. And those dry autumns are... Shocking. Yeah, it's we haven't the last couple of years have been pretty good autumns, mm. but it's probably more unusual for us to have a good autumn yeah. than a, a bad one in this district. Yeah. And in a dry autumn, you've got something to sell. Yeah. Rather than just saying, "Oh, what am I going to do with it?" Or wean it. I've got oats. My oats is not up. What do I do with it? Sell it. 
take what you can get for it or we had something to sell. Speaking to producers who I thought handled the drought reasonably well, like the most of those people said the main thing that helped them manage the drought was always having a product that they could sell no matter what it was, what yeah. class of animal it was. They are always in a condition that they could put them on a truck, which, yeah, I think was a, the difference between managing the drought well and, and possibly not managing it so well. Yes. And, Norton, you mentioned that you had quite a bit of forage oats in your system really to clean it up to so loosen. How did loosen and forage oats fit into that system? What class of stock did you have on that? The forage oats, I guess, all the calves you didn't get off as vealers, they weren't suitable. You'd say, well, they go under the oats and you get them in spring, more like supermarket weights. At Hartley, it was 100% basically went as veal. At Glencoe, we had about 1,500 acres of lucerne that's um, tapped the water table. And it was a great tool if you had to uh, early wean or something, which we did quite often in those dry years, the calves had did beautifully on the lucerne. If you had four or five years of lucerne, you could grow two years of oats without adding any fertiliser whatsoever. People used to raise their eyebrows, but all the lucerne had been top-dressed with SF45. There's so much nitrogen in there, it was just amazing, and the crops were just unbelievable. Yeah, I remember doing some soil tests on the property next door to Glencoe, one of the farmers that used to do a bit of contracting for you. I think we worked out on black soil, there's enough nitrogen left over in one year, and it was particularly good seasons, but to last him four wheat crops, and uh, on their red country it was three, so... Yeah, it's saving quite a bit of input cost, that nitrogen. You can creep feed with lucerne too, you know, just have a, a, a natural grass paddock beside it and calves can walk through a gateway and the cows can't. I've done a little bit of that, but of course the paddocks were very big and the calves didn't often want to walk that far away from the cows. It was another tool. I know some people use it as a tool for weaning, so having the creep gate on maybe a paddock of oats or something like that and the calves start to move in and graze independently and yeah you move the cows away and they yeah. don't really realize yes yeah i reckon there'd always be that one old cow that would realize and be coming back sometimes the cows where they are down condition will try and fit their head and shoulders through the creep gates i've never had one get through but it's always something you have to be wary of when you design the width of the gaps i think you've 600, the cow would get in. Yep. Through the drought on my own place, after seeing what you're doing with creep feeding, I decided to do some creep feeding, just getting my calves ready to early wean. And, yeah, it was possibly more to do with my quality of welding skills, but, yeah, the cows very quickly uh, found their way into into the creep. (laughs) That is an issue. But I'm very keen to try it on lambs. I, I I can just see a real opening there for me. I guess a lot of sheep people, meat sheep people do do it. Our lambs now, we'd like to sell our dorper straight off, off the ewe because we've had enough of them by then and uh, <laughs> we would give them that extra boost. Yeah, well, there's definitely a lot of people feedlotting lambs yeah. from experience from the drought, but people still feedlotting lambs. So, yeah, perhaps we need to find someone who's uh, doing yeah. that for the next podcast. Yes. So, Norton, if someone ring you up and ask for a bit of advice on on creep feeding. What's the one key piece of advice that you'd give someone if they're thinking to start off creep feeding? Well, I guess why do you want to creep feed? There's not much point creep feeding if you're not going to uh, keep that animal moving. If you're just going to creep feed, then wean it and start again. I can't see the sense. You class your animal. You wouldn't, be, wouldn't want to be creep feeding a replacement heifers, I would think. 
And once you start with it, follow it through. It's not rocket science. It's, it's, it's fairly easy to do. Yeah, I guess you, you make a good point. If you are creep feeding and then plan to wean, wean stock and often even just putting them on native grass or, or putting them onto oats, if you're planning to keep them for a long time after that, you can waste your time creep feeding because you will get that compensatory growth mm. from that calf if you are to put it onto a high energy, reasonable protein feed like forage oats. Yes. Norton, you mentioned before that it had to be simple because you didn't have a lot of labour units on Glencoe. And I, I know that's something I could never work out how you managed to do everything that you did at Glencoe, given the area that you're managing. And, and I think most of the time it was yourself and, and maybe one other person. I didn't see a lot of weeds in paddocks and fences were always tidied up. How did you manage such a large area with that little labour unit? Good contractors. We had neighbours doing the sowing, a good fencing contractor. At calf marking time, I mean, marking 2,500 calves, I do the mustering with, with one helper or, 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 or a son or a daughter, and I'd get a team of people in to do the actual marking. I'd, I'd get three people in. We had a uh, good, good setup, hydraulic crushers, and you'd only handle the cattle really twice. Once at calf marking, and the next time, hopefully, to be going on to market. We didn't have to wean calves. And that's where your labour comes in. We didn't have to push them around oat crops because they'd gone and you were left in wintertime with your cows. That was a big labour saving. And we didn't do a huge amount of farming, uh, only, as I said before, to basically to clean up the loosen. A couple of years of oats, then back into the loosen. And a lot of that was done by contractors? All by contractor, yeah. Yeah. That's how we did it. Uh, but you had to have good contractors and there were, there was quite a few of them around. Na- a couple of neighbours had good, good equipment, modern drills. and. Uh, we did grow wheat for a couple of years. We tried to harvest it. I found we had 1,000 acres of wheat on Miles Plains, and I calculated at the end we made more out of a truckload of velas than we did out of all this work. And so quickly worked out farming wasn't for us. But the whole thing was to keep it simple. Yeah. And I know because I was the agronomist for that 1,000 acres of wheat, and one of the, the things that I was impressed with is that at the start of the year, you actually asked me for gross margins and we sat down and we did all those calculations and it was probably the first time in my career I actually had a farmer ask me how much it was going to cost to grow a crop. Was that a, a big part of that program at Hartley Grazing that you were very outcome focused in terms of the finances? Yes. We had to make a profit. So there wasn't much point doing an enterprise that wasn't going to make any money. And at the same time, we did put a lot of money back into the property. Your SF45 bill would have been fairly substantial. There was always a lot of fertiliser yes. going out. And did you notice a benefit from that fertiliser? Huge. The cows got through winter beautifully. And in, in my own country during this last drought, I didn't have any feed because I've, I've got black soil and I've heavily supered it. I didn't have any feed, but I had my cattle oil fat, and that was, was the fertiliser. They had, ate everything. Then, of course, we fed them cotton seed as well. But on some lighter country I have, it had grass on it, which I'd only just bought, and they didn't do anywhere near as well. And that's just the, the nutrient value in mm. the, the grass, just not providing what the, the livestock need, yeah. I guess. And I find that fertilised country, if you do start to supplement with cotton seed or urea-based dry lick, you can get so much more utilisation of that feed than what you can on the light country. But our country, certainly you know, the, the black country, it was, it was bare. But we survived it 
and uh, we managed to keep our herd intact. But I think if I'd fed hay, I, I, w- I would have gone broke. It just would have been too costly. The cotton seed and utilising what was left on the farm, you know, they did well. I shoveled all the cotton seed out of the back of a ute in five kilogram shovelfuls, for 350 tonne. So I got quite sick of it <laughs> by the end. Because I know at Hartley you had a specialised machine for cotton yes. seed. Fortunately, the, we built this uh, automatic cot, a big cotton seed feed wagon, but the whole time I was in Glencoe, we, we didn't have to feed. I guess that was because the, we didn't have that severe drought and always reasonably conservatively stocked one, one cow to 10 acres, always had a fair bit of feed up our sleeve. But look, I think in this drought, whatever your stocking rate was overstocked. I was yeah, overstocked. there was no conservative stocking <laughs> rate. <laughs> one, one, one to 30 probably would have been overstocked. Yeah, yeah. Now, if it doesn't rain for three years, it's pretty hard to, uh, to estimate those sort of stocking rates. I've never seen anything like it. Um, I went through 1980 drought, family property more, it was nothing like this, 82. This two and a half years we fed. It was terrible. But I think certainly having super on the country helped us. The creep feeding, certainly I had something to sell. So we, you know, the, the, if you had a good product, you, we, we were rewarded and that was a great thing. And we unloaded a few cows right in 2019 uh, in July. They were in very good condition. We got good money. Actually, we were lucky enough to have a bit of autumn rain and I fattened them on cathead of all things. So cathead and uh, African lovegrass really two foes, but they, were, they helped us a bit near the end. Norton, I think you've given us a, a really good understanding of creep feeding and how that might fit into someone's production system. I think the most important question, as you said, is firstly you need to ask yourself why hmm. you're doing it. You have a market, you're trying to finish stock early or you're having that bit of a feed gap. It sounds like it's a, a really good opportunity. Yes. I, I'd rather feed the calf than feed the cow. And uh, you know, in, in, not in drought, but in these dry years, it's well, not these dry years, the ones before this last drought, it really was a good tool. You kept your cow, got back in the calf, and it's the main thing. Yeah. Well, thanks, Norton. Thank thanks for your time today. And thanks. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources. We've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time. <laughs>